Hello and welcome to the pod. I'm Nathan Fink. I'm Jolyn Drennan and this is New Hampshire Family Now. A show about building family in the Granite State. Today in the podcast, author, speaker, and professor emeritus Anne Garvin joins us to talk storytelling and how inappropriate laughter ushered her from a career in nursing to novel writing and much greater empathy. New Hampshire Family Now is brought to you by the New Hampshire Charitable Foundation. Since 1962, the Charitable Foundation has worked hand-in-hand with generous and visionary citizens to maximize the power of giving and support, collaborate, and lead innovative initiatives. Initiatives like New Hampshire Tomorrow, which is focused on making sure children and families have access to education, health care, and career pathways to ensure every family member thrives. To learn more about New Hampshire Charitable Foundation and all their initiatives, go to www. NHCF.org. This podcast was also brought to you by Family Support New Hampshire. Family Support New Hampshire is NH's coalition of family resource centers and family strengthening programs that exist to ensure Granite State families have access to resources so both caregivers and children can succeed because supported families are strong families. To find a family resource center near you, visit www.fsnh.org. Hey, it's Nathan, co-host of New Hampshire Family Now. I wanted to take a quick break from the show because it occurred to me the other day that I've never asked you to subscribe to this podcast. Subscribing is free, and when you do it, it helps our placement algorithms, making it that much easier for caregivers across New Hampshire to find valuable information and strategies for their families. Also, you'll be alerted when a new episode drops. And if you like the show, leaving a review helps us that much more. So go to wherever you get your podcast, type in New Hampshire Family Now, and as the kids say, smash that subscribe button. I say click it because if you smash it, then you're going to need a new one. Thank you and enjoy today's podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Co-host Joe Lynn, as sometimes but not always, is here. And she has brought with her Ann Garvin, best-selling author, speaker, teacher, RN, PhD. This is getting annoying. <laughs> who will be our wonderful keynote at Children's Trust's 10th Annual Strengthening Family Summit, The Power of Stories, on September 22nd. Ann, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I love talking to you guys. So, Jolynn, how do you two know each other? Well, Anne was my writing mentor in when I was in grad school. And uh, she was like one of my very first students at at that position. And um, I was so lucky because she has this humor and outrageousness within her that really spoke to me in her writing. And I have that as well. So it was really refreshing to work right away with somebody who was funny. So for both of us, I think it was kind of a lovely match. (laughs) That reads like a box of floor cleaner. Now with 30% more outrage and humor. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm so curious about your pathway. When I read about you, a professor who taught exercise, physiology, sports, psychology, nutrition, stress management, and global health, come best-selling author, How did you arrive at storytelling, given your really expansive background? I know it's it is such an odd pathway for me. Well, first of all, you know, I was always a reader, but like from young age, I was always a reader. And I was whenever I read about, you know, those books, what were those Little House in the Prairie books? They always talked about food and I was hungry all the time. So like, I just was like drawn to the food and the and the (laughs) examination. Come for the food, stay for the examination of life. And um, so that, I think, got me really started loving storytelling. 
you know, working as a nurse and seeing people at their worst and listening to their stories and and understanding, trying really hard to understand who they were and what they really need versus what they were talking about in terms of what they needed. helped me start to understand the complexity of people and humans. I didn't go to grad school or anything to learn really how to write because I started to understand that what I really wanted to do was help people feel better just in general, like just to, and they were not feeling good at the veterans hospital in Madison, Wisconsin. And so I started a degree in exercise physiology. That's how I got into exercise phys. And then I started doing research and that's storytelling. People wouldn't necessarily say it's storytelling, but it really is. It's like you ask a question, you figure out who, what character you're interested in looking at, and then you start to examine who they are and try to solve their problem, which is in my mind, what storytelling was like. So then later um, because I continued to be a reader and I continued to start to read more about women who had a really strong voice and humor. I realized that all of my inappropriate laughter when I was working as a nurse and whenever I was doing research that was incredibly painful and embarrassing, like I could not, I couldn't keep it straight. And even when I was doing professional, like I was always speaking at the medicine, science and sports and exercise, and I would sit ready to go up there and do it like a scientist. And I like couldn't do it. Like I couldn't go up there and do a talk straight. I couldn't not joke around. I couldn't not tell it like a story. And then I realized that that was my voice. Like that was the way that I made things different. So then I, I think that I was looking for another challenge when I started to write. I think I was tenured by then and I didn't love writing science. I wasn't really very good at it. I, you have to say the same thing over and over. And if you try to say it differently, they make you cross it out. And I entered a writing contest and the writing I did by one second place. And it was here in, in Madison and it was judged by a bunch of professors. And since I'm a snob in the professor world, like I just couldn't believe that anybody who taught writing thought that what I'd written was worth a, pr a prize. So that's when I started thinking, well, maybe this is another way that I can reach people through story and make them feel better. And at first I thought what I would do was write all of the content that I was teaching about nutrition and stress management and health and global health. I would write that in stories. But then they, I pitched that to a publisher and they're like, you're not really qualified to do this. And I was like, I mean, I'm not qualified to do a lot of things, but i probably qualified. They said, you should write fiction. I'm like, I guarantee I'm not qualified to do that. So I, um, but then I just thought, well, I'm going to learn how to do it so that I can embed all of the stuff I've learned about humans into stories. And that's kind of how I came around to it. It's complicated, right? Because other people were like, I like dragons and I like princesses. And I really want to, you know, we're like, I read always and I had notebooks when I was little kids filled with stories. And I was like, I, no, I, that wasn't it. But I also should say this is that when I was teaching as a professor, I, I am sure that my parent, my students were like, in fact, I've heard them say that they're like, I loved your class. I learned so much. I have no notes. And I think. I know I don't do lists. I tell stories and um, they never knew what to write down. And then so usually before an exam, I just gave them all the answers because I thought they're never going to get it. <laughs> <laughs> I told them a bunch of stories and then and then, the you know, the people that ever came to class, they got all the answers. And then the other ones that didn't come, it was like a natural curve. So it was great. <laughs> we won't tell. Yeah, tell no one. I'm emeritus now. I don't I think they can take that, but maybe. <laughs> Ha, ha, ha.
<laughs> anyway, that was, it is a very circuitous route, but like, it's been really fun. It's just been really fun to spend a lot of time taking a look at the kinds of things that make people human and, and putting it on the page and really taking some of the heat out of it because I, I do really make fun of people a lot and because I am a human and it's easy to make fun of me. I get it. And I love that part of it. I think that's the most fun part of it for me is to take something that's dramatic and then look at it and take some of the sting out of it by putting a little humor in it because next thing you know, you're laughing. And that's kind of what I wanted to reach for people. So, and I've been listening to David Sedaris's masterclass. One of the sections in that masterclass, it was talking about how to connect to others and how storytelling connects to others and how you can ad hoc, like engage someone by asking better questions. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the key to all storytelling is to, and I will say I can do small talk uh, very well and I, but I don't like it because the small talk is just garbage really you know it's throat clearing and so often I'll go straight for the like the hard question and then I get to know somebody deeply immediately and I can tell you what if you're on a dating app you can very clearly see who you might want to date and who might not want to date with asking those questions because you're going to get the truth people are dying to tell you the truth and I love that because I think if you ask better questions, you just have to listen very carefully to what they're talking about. Like recently, I'll just give you an example really quickly. I was talking to this guy who was working at an emergency room. He had been an emergency doctor for just a couple of years. And he said, yeah, I, I just, I don't know. I said, well, how is it going there? Like, what are you thinking about it? And he said, it's pretty exhausting. I go, was it what you thought it would be? And he said, I don't think it is what I thought it would be. And I said, what did you think it would be? He was telling me and then I said, do you like it enough to stick with it or do you think you might want to leave? And he said, I don't want to be a doctor anymore. And then he went, oh, my God. And I, you know, and it was just it was just through these questions that I was like, so how do you feel about that? Like, what do you like about it? What don't you like about it? How are you feeling right now through these questions? And then something happened and we were at a party and something happened. I didn't see him again. I thought, oh, I ruined his life. I just. <laughs> You might see him on that dating app, by the way. Just keep those questions rolling. <laughs> yeah. So I, those are, I, I do love that. Like that's the kind of conversations I like. Now, you know, the idea of, I think, better questions is so fascinating to me because I think that better questions lead to the heart of the heart of our experience. And you start to elicit these phrases, like you just said, like, I want, I need, I don't want, you know, even this, the big I am or these declarative statements, which is, I think, a way to like zero in on and elevate really human truths, which is kind of the whole point of storytelling. And, you know, your humor and voice might be your way of wrestling with these truths. And you just happen to laugh about it, which makes it easier to bear. But our experiences as humans are vastly different. And um, it makes me wonder about these central truths or maybe aspirations or maybe even considerations. And so I kind of wanted to zero in on that idea, this question of how does storytelling create and nurture this space for truth? And why is that so important for us all? So I think there's a couple of things I think that storytelling does. For one thing, if you're telling a story, you, you it's sort of like I don't have to give you the facts because I don't know what the facts are, but I can tell you a story that I relate to. And then we can draw conclusions from that story. And it feels a little bit like we're talking around the truth to get to the truth. Because I think that when you ask a question and people are like, I don't even know if 
if what I'm going to say is a truth or a fact or a, a belief or whatever. But if you ask them and sort of like, tell me a story that felt really, you know, important to you when you were a child or, you know, how you always remember one story, like, what's that story? And do you think it has meaning? Then you can say, you can take a look at that story and then kind of see if it does have meaning. Did it, does it have a relationship with something else going on? And I think that that's what happens with story. It's a little bit like sneaky way of getting into someone and if they're not careful you're going to get in the house and they're not going to want you in right like because I think you know we spend so much time keeping sure that nobody is out like we every like I have I'm pretty sure I have a filter on the zoom call that we're on right now I'm not (laughs) pretty sure I do and that like that's a way to keep people out like how old is she what is she doing is she stressed out those kinds of things right and we put things up on Instagram that makes it look like you know I I mow my lawn and I plant flowers and, you know, so we want people to see the best of us. And I think what's interesting is that the number one thing that people say they want in a relationship is to be seen. And yet we work really hard to make sure that people don't see us. And the reason we do that is that we don't want to be rejected for who we are. So we have to spend a lot of time trying to decide whether this person is going to be kind to this nugget of me when I'm not even kind to myself that much. And so I think that, you know, the storytelling is a way for us to like, I'm just going to tell you a story. It may or may not be about me. And then you look to see how they react, you know, and, and then they tell the story and you're like, wow, did they listen to my story? Did they not? Why are they thinking about that? And it's like a big detective thing that's going on. Yeah. And one of the things that we know is that in science, when you're doing like a a science experiment, if I come right up to you and say, this thing is going to remove all your pain, you will go, I mean, maybe, but people have lied to me in the past. But if I go up to you and I say nothing and I say something like, well, this is for pain and we we have tablets um, and injections. So you can choose. Oh, you want an injection? Okay. And we know already that an injection is going to work faster. And so we will open our minds up to the idea that this will be um, a better way to receive this great pain medication that they're offering me. We are detectives. We love to make our own conclusions and guess and figure things out. Um, But we're also mistrusting because we have to be for protection reasons. And so I think that that's what story does, right? Like it allows us to talk about ourselves without talking about ourselves. And it allows us to open up a truth and then pull it back if we need to, depending on how they reply. You know, in in a perfect world where like you guys are just trying to give people the sources, resources that they need, you know, it'd be great if they were able to walk in like daisies, having never been, you know, damaged at any point in their lives, but we all have done. So we're all a little nervous and we've all been in front of caregivers who have made judgments or haven't necessarily done what we thought they would do. Both it reveals and protects us. And I, but it also strikes me too, that we're at this really weird time in our culture. And maybe this is a reaction to truth. It feels like people are waiting to speak, but in storytelling, I've read a lot of, you know, your kind of philosophy is look, listening is at the forefront of storytelling. Well, you know, um, so I write novels, right? I do write essays as well, but, um, but I write novels. And this sounds a little woo-woo, but I really am building a character and listening to her all the time. 
And that's why it takes a while to write a novel because it takes a while for you to get to know that person. And you can, people, I teach a lot of things on plotting. And this year I'm teaching like five classes on how to plot a novel. And people think the trick is like, with after this many words, you have this happen and the midpoint reversal has this happen. And all of that is very important for pacing and timing. But like you can put all kinds of things in front of your protagonist. And then later on, you realize that's not who my protagonist is telling me who she is or he is. And so I listen very acutely to that. I also listen acutely to other people's conversations. I listen to my friends' conversations. And those that is where the truth comes. Like, I think one of the things that we know about writing both essay, nonfiction and fiction is that what we're trying to do is write a story that universally people will respond to through their own relatability. And the only way to do that is to really sort of understand the human condition in whatever way that we can. Like, for example, I know that, you know, I'm writing it through my lens. I'm not going to speak to everybody. You know, so like if I'm writing about a certain age group or a certain class or something like that, I'm going to speak probably mostly to those people. But I do know that there are some very universal kinds of things with people. One of the things that I always say is that whenever someone is fighting, especially in a couple, especially in a relationship or a friendship, often they might be fighting about, you know, loading the dishwasher is always one of those things that they've like. Or it's, you know, whose time is more valuable or who's going to pick up the kids or why do I have to cook dinner every night or whatever. But when you distill that down, I think the question that everybody's asking is, do you love me? Like, do you love me? And I think that all of those fights, like, like you didn't call me or or what's happening or whatever, it may not be, it, it, you know, in a loving relationship, it's just, do you love me? But it could be in like, do you like me? Am I of value? And, you know, as much as the world is currently saying you're enough, I also think that, you know, the psychology and the memes on Instagram, I think most people believe that no way are they enough, not even close. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll have more with best-selling author Anne Garvin. Don't go anywhere. Join New Hampshire Children's Trust September 22nd for the 10th Annual Strengthening Families Summit, The Power of Stories. Grounded in the Strengthening Families framework, this year's summit will examine how storytelling can empower, heal, expand perspectives, and influence decision makers to invest in New Hampshire families and build strong communities. Registration for this event closes Friday, September 16th, so get your tickets today. To learn more, visit nhchildrenstrust.org. Many thanks to New Hampshire's Office of Social and Emotional Wellness for sponsoring this podcast. Started within New Hampshire's Department of Education, the Office of Social and Emotional Wellness consolidates policy development and implements projects and programs that are focused on health and wellness with an emphasis on behavioral health of all students, youth, and families. To learn more about the Department of Education and its many programs and approaches, visit www.education.nh.gov. This podcast was brought to you by Nixon Peabody, who delivers exceptional legal services for clients in the community by combining high performance, an entrepreneurial spirit, deep engagement, and an unwavering commitment to a culture of collaboration, diversity, and humanity. Nixon Peabody works with universities, hospitals, and nonprofits of every size to maximize impact. For more information, visit nixonpeabody.com. And now back to our interview with Ann Garvin. So am I of value? How does that anchor into whether or not we're really hearing or listening to people? So that all boils down to the same kind of thing. Am I seen? Does somebody love me? And and when we're paying attention to those questions, I think the closer we get to what people are really trying to say, 
the closer we get to understanding humanity. Um, and for storytelling, that's all I care about is sort of understanding humanity. You know, Joan Didion, God bless her. I wish I would have said this before she did, but probably I would have and nobody would have cared. But she was like, I write to figure out what I'm thinking. And whenever I need to think of something, whatever it is, I'm writing it down first. I'm writing, writing, writing. I do it in notepads. I do it in letters to people. I sometimes have no idea even where I start. And then, but once I start to write, it all comes out. Thank goodness. Otherwise I'd be like, I don't know. My whole life would be where's my teeth. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think our universal truth is always, you know, does anybody care? Do people care? Do I care? And um, what are those, um, you know, what are those signposts and how do I see them? And then if you're a person who cares about another person, like how do I tell them? How do they read it? How do they see it? You know, but but I think you make a really good point about this idea of that everybody's waiting to speak instead of listening. And that I think that's a function of not being heard. Right. They're like, okay, but what like what about me? Like, what do you think of me, though? You know, and I think, again, it's we have to be a detective. Are we talking to somebody who cares about me or you? Or are we talking to somebody who just really needs to talk about themselves? (laughs) And it's anybody listening here. And then, you know, it's it's a matter of trying to find your value in the world. that's based on who you are deeply and then keeping the other people either at bay or close by. It's not an easy thing. That is for sure. I was just going to launch into this thing about marketing. I've got this big bugaboo about marketing right now because I feel like we have been so marketed to. And unfortunately, early, you know, probably the I actually looked recently up who the father of marketing was. And, you know, what he was trying to do is figure out what customers want. But I think what marketing often does now is how can I manipulate that customer into wanting my stuff, right? And so we've been so manipulated over and over that when I look at the tenants of marketing and then I look at Gavin DeBecker's seven signs of what a predator is doing, those things are so close that it's no wonder that we are always like on guard because the very things that are we are seeing every day on every billboard, every website, every television show is using the tenets of, I need your money. I want to sell you this. You need to feel bad. And that's exactly what the tenets of predator and prey do. Um, I know that that's not where it started. I get it, but I think that's where it's coming. So what people are doing is I don't trust anything. I think well, you speak to vulnerability in storytelling. I think that you have to be you have to be vulnerable to be a storyteller. And then you have to be you have to be even more vulnerable to pull the story from someone else, which I think that's you have a lot of experience doing that because you had to pull a lot of stories out of me. (laughs) 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 Um, And and I'm thinking about it as we've been preparing for the summit, how this applies to some of the um, providers that we work with and really their main jobs are to pull the stories out of their participants. And so one of the, you know, one of the questions and when I was in direct service that I would always ask to try to ask an open-ended question. And I've always thought of that as that's me asking you to tell a story. I mean, I think it's really interesting because you're right. You do have to be very vulnerable because you have to be ready. You have to make a safe space and you have to be available to be the person that would also engage if they needed that to feel safe. 
It's funny. I, I have two really funny stories. They're not super funny. They're like funny and sad, which is what I always do, I think. But when I was a new nurse, I was like 20 or something, a 19, 20 year old nurse. And we all had to wear white dresses and we were wearing white nylons. I was so, it was so many years ago when they still had those tenants of what a nurse should look like. And I walked in and I had a kid that had broken both his arms as in football game. And he was one year younger than me. And I was his nurse and I walked in and I was like, oh, hey. And he's like, what? And I said, I'm, a, I'm your nurse. And he's like, I got to go to the bathroom. And I was like, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I have the suppository. And I said, how does that make you feel? <laughs> and he was like, not good. And the funny part of that is that prior to that, we had all had this big lesson on how does that make you feel and using that phrase. And I thought it sounded so fake. And I kept thinking to myself, I'm never going to use that. So when push came to shove and this guy had this look on his face, I was like, how does that make you feel? He was like, I don't, not good, get out. And so I went and got a new nurse to do that. But that idea of how does that make you feel is such an open-ended question that it was not a good situation. Like, but I really learned in that moment, like what that question was about. It's so interesting you say that because it just, that question to me felt like it was trying to level the playing field because of what you said prior, which I think acknowledges power dynamic, which essentially is that story you just told, which you've got this power dynamic that was completely leveled with how does that make you feel? How do you see that storytelling as power and leveling the field dynamic play out? You know, Lisa Cron talks about how storytelling has been around since the dawn of time and that, you know, if people were like, if all people had to say is that guy drank out of that water over there and died, that's a story. And now people know not to drink out of that water. And that's leveling the playing field. You know, we're all going to die if we drink that water. So the person in power is the person that knew, you know, and then he took himself off power and told everybody about it. Well, if storytelling in the right hands really helps us figure out who we are as humans. So like, if you think of all the shows or the movies that you watch, we can equally agree that some of those stories are stories about trauma because nobody wants to go through what they've gone through. Or some of those stories are um, stories of, you know, success and, and victory. And we definitely feel that when we're going through those things. And so a story only has power if you can get people to feel something when you're doing it. And it should be the thing that you want them to feel like, you know, they shouldn't feel aversion when you're like, I'll never forget this one guy was pitching to an agent and I was sitting there and it was such a reprehensible story. And it was clearly about him that the minute he said it, we all went and we backed up like and so we felt something and it wasn't what he wanted us to feel. And so, you know, I think that. That what we're trying to do is get people to feel certain things. And often we want them to feel those things so that they feel trust. They feel heard. They feel like it's a safe space to tell their story. Um, you know, it's funny. I've always thought it was interesting with therapy that often therapists try very hard not to not to tell their stories. They just ask the questions and open up. And And I had this experience years ago, many years ago, and I walked into my therapist's office he was new for me. And I said to him, I am not here to get a divorce. I just need to figure out how to work and live with my husband, who's an alcoholic. I said, I'm not going to do it. I said, I have two little kids. I don't have time. It's going to be awful. I can't do it. And he said, well, how long has he been drinking? And I said, you know, pretty much my whole marriage. And he went, 
well, you need a divorce. <laughs> and I was like, I said, you're not supposed to say that. Aren't you not supposed to say that? And he said, well, I've been dry for 25 years. And he said, well, it probably wouldn't have happened unless my wife divorced me. And I'm just saying there's, there's not going to be any happiness for you. And your kids will probably marry somebody just like him. And uh, unless he gets cleaned up. I mean, that was such a, it was so valuable for me to hear his story that he was not afraid to tell me that he was not afraid to sit there and say, you know, I'm so smart. I'm your therapist. I'm going to tell you everything that it came from a place of addiction, but it did so much for me. I'm not saying that would be appropriate in any other way or even with other therapists, but it was really meaningful for me. Just knowing, you know, that I wasn't sitting, like you say, in the seat of beneath power, you know, that is, I'm so glad to hear you say that because that is kind of one of the premises of family support is that you walk alongside and you erase the power dynamic. And um, we do a lot of work with uh, programs that use the peer support model because who can engage someone better than someone that's been in that situation before? Yeah, I think, I think that's what empathy is, right? And that is what story is. We all have pain. We all have loss. We all have grief. You know, we all have love. We all have these things that we, you know, would like in our lives. And sometimes we get them and a lot of times we don't. And thank you so much for coming on the show today. And I think, Jolyn, I obviously you could speak for yourself, but I, th I think I could do this all day. Oh, yeah. I could talk to Anne all day long. Thank you, you guys. And there's still time to hear more from Anne by registering for the 10th Annual Strengthening Family Summit, The Power of Stories, now. Go to www.nhchildrenstrust.org. That's nhchildrenstrust.org. Many thanks to the Samuel P. Hunt Foundation for sponsoring this podcast. Established in 1951, Samuel P. Hunt Foundation is a Manchester-based, independent nonprofit that provides grants primarily for the arts, children and youth services, faith-based organizations, educational institutions, healthcare, and human services. Today's show was also brought to you by the Children's Hospital at Dartmouth-Hitchcock and the Child Advocacy and Protection Program, a multidisciplinary program with the Children's Hospital established to evaluate and provide integrated care to suspected victims of child maltreatment. Together, a team of physicians, advanced practice registered nurses, social workers, nurses, and child life specialists work to provide consultation and evaluations of children who are suspected victims of abuse, so to serve in the best interest of children and families at multiple levels of prevention. For more information about Children's Hospital at Dartmouth-Hitchcock and the Child Advocacy Protection Program, visit www.chadkids.org backslash child advocacy. New Hampshire Family Now is listed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and more. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or ask your smart speaker to play New Hampshire Family Now.